Well, good morning once again. Uh, we are continuing our series this morning uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians. And so we'll see with the passage this morning uh, that there is a, a connection to uh, the passage from last week from 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul in chapter 4 uh, wrote of the wasting away of the outer self, of the renewing of the inner self, of, of being those, those jars of, of clay, those weak vessels for God's power, uh, of the glory that awaits in heaven, and of the greater worth of the unseen things compared to the visible. So th- this morning, uh, the passage comes from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10. So turn in your Bibles or follow along on the screen, and let us be reminded that this is God's Word. It is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the very core of who we are. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that you would make your word clear to us and that we would see its power, its truth, its beauty. Uh, Give us your Holy Spirit to understand, and may you edit any human error that that I would bring to your holy and inspired word. Uh, It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So three main things that we will look at this morning. We will look at our earthly tents, our heavenly dwelling, and judgment. So first, our earthly tents. Uh, You see in verse 1 that Paul uses the word tent. And so the the Greek word that's used for tent is the same word that's used for body. So we can understand the tent to be uh, our present bodies. Now, it must be said uh, at the start that God created the bodies that we have, so they are good. Uh, So we must not think that Paul is promoting some sort of dualistic or Gnostic thinking, which was around at that time and maybe the Corinthians interacted with and is still alive today in in some ways. But that kind of thinking that says that the body, the, the material is inherently evil and that we should want to finally escape the, the prisons of our human bodies so that we can become uh, disembodied souls you know, forever, doing who knows what. 
So that's certainly not what Paul is teaching here. Uh, Our bodies are good because they are creations from God. However, in that same verse 1, Paul says that they will be destroyed. So there is a temporary nature to our present bodies. The reality is our earthly bodies are in decay. Uh, As much as we might try to find that, that fountain of youth, as much as we seek to exercise or eat right, moisturize, use those essential oils. Um, and those things aren't necessarily wrong, right? It's not, it's not necessarily wrong to, to want to be healthy and, and to seek those things. Uh, certainly, anything can, can be an idol, for sure. But let's face it, we're absolutely surrounded and, and bombarded with messages from our culture that, that glorify the human body uh, and the, the present life in a, a now-only kind of way. Uh, I think the show uh, Seinfeld basically captures this kind of uh, living only for the present without any regard for the future. Uh, it's essentially about four rather narcissistic friends living in New York and their experiences with each other and with other people. And I think the final episode of, of the show kind of bears out this live only for the now without any regard for the future kind of pursuit in that they, they find themselves standing trial and end up in prison for, uh, for a misdeed, but, but really you know, for a, a whole bunch of, of, of misdeeds, a whole bunch of, of, of things that were done in a self-serving kind of way at other people's expense. And it's actually in the final episode, early in the show, early in the episode, where the George character is talking to the, the Jerry character, and George is expressing uh, just a, a meaninglessness to his life at that present time. Like he's, he's just looking for something uh, that can give him meaning. And Jerry says, well, what about your health? You have your health. And George responds, ah, I'm sick of health. You know, health isn't doing it for me. So even that, that, that one thing, health, that we all seek, right, and we all desire, um, you know, was not doing it for him, was not cutting it for him at that time. Another episode in the, the series, the George character is speaking with an elderly gentleman, I think somewhere in his 80s, and the subject of death comes up, and the elderly gentleman um, is really expressing more of a resigned nature to death. You know, his approach is, you know, it's going to happen soon for me, I'm just kind of resigned to it. But George, in a somewhat ironic way, who is considerably younger, is saying, how can you not think about death? You know, I think about it every moment of the day, uh, you know, expressing really the opposite of it, that it's always on his mind and, and he's always fearful of it. Well, death is that one thing that we can't escape. Uh, unless Jesus would come back in our lifetimes, which is a possibility, you know, we don't know when that will be, but death is that one thing that is coming for us all. It's that impending reality that hangs over us. Uh, Ernest Becker, who was an anthropologist, uh, wrote this, The fear of death is natural and is present in everyone. It is the basic fear that influences all others, a fear from which no one is immune, no matter how disguised it may be. William James, who was an American philosopher, called death the worm at the core of man's pretensions to happiness. And so we think of death. 
And we see this, this groaning that Paul describes in this passage, this groaning that we experience in our earthly bodies. And not just once, but twice does Paul mention this groaning. Uh, verse 2, for in this tent we groan. Verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, we groan. While we are still in our bodies, we groan. And this calls to mind Romans 8.23, another letter of Paul's, where, where he writes there, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So Paul, when he was alive at the time of this writing, is expressing his own agony, as it were, in his earthly life experiences, in his own sufferings, in this groaning. Well, brothers and sisters, we, we groan in our bodies, do we not? We experience those aches and pains, illness, disease, weakness, things that, that limit us, things that restrict us. More than that, we struggle with the ongoing effects of, of sin in our mortal bodies, and we long to be free you know, once and for all from the present effects of sin. We groan. This brings us to the second main thing this morning, and that is our heavenly dwelling. And, and Paul uh, teaches us that it is God who has prepared for us this dwelling. It is God who has prepared us something truly wonderful. And if you look at verse 1 again, Paul uh, uses a contrast there where he contrasts the temporary nature of our tents, our earthly bodies, with the permanence of a building or a house. Now, at first glance, we, we read this, and it may seem a little confusing as to what Paul is really getting at here. Uh, you know, some commentators have said that this, this house or this building refers you know, more to a, a place in heaven that God is preparing. But if we consider the context of the previous passage, the outer self wasting away, the inner self being renewed, the future weight of glory, and then also 1 Corinthians 15 in that glorious chapter, the perishable body putting on the imperishable, the mortal body putting on immortality, it seems that Paul is talking about the future resurrection which will produce resurrection bodies. And it was Paul's wish that, that he would not have to face actual death. It was a real thing in his mind that Jesus could have returned in his lifetime so that Paul could immediately have been ushered into heaven and immediately put on the resurrection body. But Paul was also realistic, and he recognized that this was not a guarantee that he might have to face death and assures himself in verse 1 of the promise from God that, that one day he will have this new body. And so back to the groaning for a minute. The groaning is really a groaning for the future. And what do I mean by that? Well, in this groaning, we, we long to put on this heavenly body, this resurrection body, so that we may not be found naked. Paul uses this language in verse 3. So there is a kind of attention going on here in that Paul seems to be referring to the intermediate state, which is that time in between death and the final resurrection where believers will not yet have their resurrection 
bodies, which is the nakedness, but will nonetheless be with the Lord. Uh, Elsewhere, in another letter of Paul's, his letter to the Philippians, in chapter 1, he also talks about this this tension that that he was going through, where he writes in, in Philippians, home in the body, here and now, away from the Lord, versus away from the body, after death, and at home with the Lord. And so at that time, Paul was thinking, I don't know which one is better, to to be here and and still serve my brothers and sisters, or to die and to be with the Lord. So this intermediate state is not given much detail here by Paul, but what do we know? Elsewhere in Scripture, it it is described. We can think of the cross, and we can Think of the thief that hung on the cross next to Jesus. And what did Jesus say to the one thief? Today, you will be with me in paradise. And so Paul is not just emphasizing uh, just a mere escape of his present afflictions, the, the afflictions and the sufferings and the weakness that come with our present bodies, but he's longing for something in the future. He's longing for a sweetness and the delight that comes with entering into eternal life with God. So this groaning is not just a feeling of despair at the thought of death, as as fearful as we we might be of death, but it's a longing, a longing that, yes, involves pain, but is anchored by a future hope or expectation. We can think of a woman in labor and the pain that comes with childbirth But what also goes along with that? There's the joy that will soon be hers as she holds her new child. Or the longing to see friends again or or family members. You know, this this word that's used for groaning in the Greek also refers to that, longing to see people we love again. Paul expresses that kind of groaning in his letter to the Romans. So we groan. But we also ask, how can we be sure that God is preparing all of this for us? Well, if you look at verse 5, we see there that God has given the Spirit as that guarantee. The Holy Spirit, the, the third member of the triune God, is that guarantee, the down payment, the Holy Spirit who God has sent to dwell within our hearts. So the, the work of the Spirit now in our hearts, the work of renewal, of sanctification that is going on now is that guarantee that in the future, our salvation will be complete and we will receive resurrection bodies. And so we we think of these things and we receive these things in faith. You know, Paul mentions this in verse seven, walking by faith. You know, we sometimes find ourselves saying, or hear others say, you know, I'll believe it when I see it, right? But Jesus turns out on its very head when he says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Friends, our Christian journey is one of faith, believing in that which we cannot see. We're reminded of the words from Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. 
Faith is that instrument. It is the means whereby we do believe and lay hold of God's promises that await in the future. And so that brings us to the third main thing this morning, that is judgment. We hear that word, and it, it may be a word and an idea that, that sends shivers down our spine. Uh, judgment may be one of those things that we may not really want to talk about, or we, we may say, does the Bible really talk about it? Is this really a thing you know, that, that is true? Is this really something that God does? Well, Paul is, is clear here that we must all appear before God to be judged. If you look at verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It is Christ who has been given authority to judge because he is the Son of God. A J.I. Packer wrote this, when Christ comes again and history is completed, all humans of all ages will be raised for judgment and will take their place before Christ's judgment seat. The event is unimaginable, no doubt, but human imagination is no measure of what a sovereign God can and will do. So the question is, should we fear the final judgment? Well, the short answer is no for those who have placed their faith in Jesus. As Romans 8.1 declares, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? What exactly has Jesus done? So a few years ago, uh, I was in the middle of uh, a seminary course on the covenant and the, the richness of the covenant throughout Scripture and how the covenant uh, assures us of our salvation and, and what the covenant speaks to our relationship with God. And the professor was just really in the zone, and he was, you know, he was just saying one thing after another, and I remember thinking, yeah, amen, right on, right on. And then all of a sudden, he said these words, we are saved by works. And I remember hearing those words and kind of doing one, you know, sitting very straight up in, in my chair, thinking to myself, wow, we have just lost cabin pressure here. You know, what, what is going on? Do I need to disenroll from this class, from this seminary? Well, only a few seconds later, the professor then said, we are saved by Christ's works, by Christ's works. And it is Jesus Christ who came to earth, took on flesh, lived the perfect life required by God's holy standard, that which we cannot live up to because of our sin. It is Christ who died a sacrificial death, bearing God's wrath that we deserve because of our sin. He is the perfect substitute. And it is Christ who rose from the dead so that, that we could be resurrected to new life in him. So we don't have to fear the final judgment if we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We can be assured now that salvation is and will be ours because of God's grace to us in Christ. But there is another aspect of this, this judgment that, that Paul writes of in verse 10 with these words, that each one may receive what is due. So the fact is there will be rewards given out in heaven 
for the things that we do in this life. And again, we go back to, to what Packer wrote about it. it. It is unimaginable. You know, we, we can't quite comprehend what that will look like, what it will be like. I do know that in heaven, we won't be looking around and, and saying, oh, you know, he has this or, or she has that. Um, it will be perfectly done. It will be fair. It will be just because God is these things. And so we think of our lives now and what does it really mean? It means living a life that is faithful to God, living a life of worth, not wasting our lives, not squandering opportunities to use our God-given gifts. We aim to please God because we love him, really because he has loved us first and enabled us to love him. Just as a wife and a husband aim to please each other, not out of just some strict sense of duty or, or mere obligation, but out of, out of love. Or, or a young child cleaning his or her room, wanting to please his or her parents out of love. I think the words from Ephesians 2, uh, it's just a beautiful reminder uh, of this. Verses 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love this quote from St. Augustine, short and sweet. He wrote, give what you command and command what you will. Uh, really a, a prayer you know, that, that we pray Unto God, give what you command. You know, sometimes we we hear or we preach to ourselves things like "try harder" or "you got this," referring to the Christian life. The fact is, we don't got this, and and these kinds of things are are not found in in Scripture. It's always by God's grace. We are always utterly dependent upon the grace of God, upon the power of the Spirit. So what we do now in this earthly body does matter, but our Christian hope is not rooted in the pleasures and comforts of this life. Rather, it is future-oriented. So Paul was writing to assure himself and encourage those in Corinth at the time and us today to, to lay hold of what lies in the future. Yes, God will judge all things. It is not something that we can get an exemption for, right, that we can postpone when it is convenient for us. God will judge all things at his appointed time, and that affects how we live now. It affects our perspective now. James Montgomery Boyce was a a well-respected theologian and a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church up in Philadelphia for 32 years, from 1968 until 2000. But it was in the spring of 2000 when Boyce received the news that he had an aggressive form of liver cancer. And this disease would claim his life in a matter of only eight weeks. It was Boyce's good friend and fellow pastor, Philip Riken, who himself would serve as senior pastor at 10th Presbyterian, who preached these words in June of 2000 while Boyce was still living. So this is an excerpt taken from that sermon of of Philip Riken. 
The form of cancer that now invades Dr. Boyce's body is very aggressive. The doctors who are caring for him initially prescribed a round of chemotherapy in the hope that it would slow the disease. This proved ineffective, and given the advanced state of the cancer, no further treatment of any kind is possible. Apart from divine intervention, his days on this earth will soon come to an end, and he will enter into the joy of his eternal reward. We can praise God for all these things, but at the same time, we must be honest about the fact that our pastor's illness and expected death have plunged many of us into grief. Already we grieve Dr. Boyce's absence from the pulpit, and we are filled with sadness at the prospect that we may never see him on this side of eternity again. One of the things that can help us as we grieve is Dr. Boyce's own teaching on the subject of death, and I want to close with a selection from one of his books. So these are the words of Boyce taken from one of those books. The Christian doctrine of the resurrection recognizes that death is an enemy and is therefore something unnatural, something evil and that was not God's original intention for humanity. It is important to stress this because some forms of Christianity encourage a false optimism that denies the three great evils, sin, suffering, and death. Do we deny because we think that somehow it is more spiritual to pretend that death is not real? I do not know but I do know that such attempts are unsuccessful. Although in one sense, denial might satisfy us if we are not now facing death, at least to the extent that we are not thinking about it, it does not satisfy anybody who is face-to-face with it. False optimism does no good. On the other hand, the Christian doctrine of the resurrection speaks victory over death provided for us by the Lord Jesus. After writing about death as an enemy, Paul went on to speak of the ultimate victory to come. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. He, Paul, concluded, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a victory that is. It is an entrance of the soul and spirit into the presence of God to be followed in God's own time by a physical resurrection. Assurance of these things is ours because of Christ's resurrection. End of quotes. Brothers and sisters, God's word reveals to us ultimate reality. It doesn't sugarcoat things. It paints death as as something that is unwanted, something that's an enemy, something that's quite unnatural in and of itself. But simultaneously, death reminds us of what it will usher us into. It lifts our minds and hearts to the victory that belongs to Jesus Christ and the victory that we experience in part now and will one day fully experience in the new heavens and the new earth when we will put on resurrection bodies. So let us live in light of this, devoting our lives to God who gives us all things. To God be the glory. Let's pray.